0: I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Psalm chapter 68 for our Old Testament reading this morning. It's a somewhat lengthy psalm, but a psalm that I think deserves uh, some close attention as it has certain resonances with what we will hear in this morning's sermon text. Here, um, the psalmist speaks of the great victory of our Lord, and this is in fact the same psalm that Paul will cite In Ephesians chapter 4, speaking of Christ's ascension into heaven and the kingdom that He has received by His resurrection from the dead. Psalm 68, concerning the kingship of our God. God shall arise and His enemies shall be scattered. Those who hate Him shall flee before Him. As smoke is driven away, so you shall drive them away. As wax melts before the fire, so the wicked shall perish before God. But the righteous shall be glad. They shall exult before God. They shall be jubilant with joy. Sing to God. Sing praises to his name. Lift up a song to him who rides through the deserts. His name is the Lord. Exult before him. Father of the fatherless and protector of widows is God in His holy habitation. God settles the solitary in a home. He leads out the prisoners to prosperity. But the rebellious dwell in a parched land. O God, when You went out before Your people, when You marched through the wilderness, the earth quaked, the heavens poured down rain before God, the One of Sinai, before God, the God of Israel. Reign in abundance, O God, you shed abroad. You restored your inheritance as it languished. Your flock found a dwelling in it. In your goodness, O God, you provided for the needy. The Lord gives the word. The women who announce the news are a great host. The kings of the armies, they flee, they flee. The women at home divide the spoil. Though you men lie among the sheepfolds, the wings of a dove covered with silver, its pinions with shimmering gold. When the Almighty scatters kings there, let snow fall on Zalman. O mountain of God, mountain of Bashan, O many-peaked mountain, mountain of Bashan, why do you look with hatred, O many-peaked mountain, at the mountain that God has desired for his abode? Yes, where the Lord will dwell forever. The chariots of God are twice ten thousand, thousands upon thousands. The Lord is among them. Sinai is now in the sanctuary. You ascended on high, leading a host of captives in your train, and receiving gifts among men, even among the rebellious, that the Lord God may dwell there. Blessed be the Lord who daily bears us up. God is our salvation. For God is a God of salvation, and to God the Lord belong deliverances from death. But God will strike the heads of his enemies. The hairy crown of him who walks in his guilty ways, the Lord said, I will bring them back from Bashan, I will bring them back from the depths of the sea, that you may strike your feet in their blood, that the tongues of your dogs may have their portion from the foe. Your procession is seen, O God. The procession of my God, my King, into the sanctuary. The singers in front, the musicians, last, between them virgins playing tambourines. Bless God and the great congregation, the Lord, O you who are of Israel's fountain. There is Benjamin, the least of them in the lead, the princes of Judah and their throng, the princes of Zebulun, the princes of Naphtali. Summon your power, O God, the power, O God, by which you have worked for us. Because of your temple at Jerusalem, kings shall bear gifts to you. Rebuke the beasts that dwell among the reeds, the herd of bulls with the calves of the peoples. Trample underfoot those who lust after tribute. Scatter the peoples who delight in war. Nobles shall come from Egypt. Cush shall hasten to stretch out her hands to God. O kingdoms of the earth, sing to God. Sing praises to the Lord. To him who rides in the heavens, the ancient heavens, behold, he sends out his voice, his mighty voice, ascribe power to God whose majesty is over Israel and whose power is in the skies. Awesome is God from his sanctuary, the God of Israel. He is the one who gives power and strength to his people. Blessed be God. Now, turning with me, if you would, to 2 Corinthians chapter 2. We'll look this morning at verses 12 to 17. While you're turning there, and as we're about to read, I just want to ask a simple question, a question that I want us to consider as we uh, contemplate this morning's passage. What is it that characterizes a faithful ministry? Is it success? Is it numbers? Or is it something else? that question in mind, what characterizes a faithful ministry? Let us hear now God's inspired word. Paul speaking, that when I came to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ, even though a door was open for me in the Lord, my spirit was not at rest because I did not find my brother Titus there. So I took leave of them and went on to Macedonia. But thanks be to God who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession. And through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of Him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance from death to death. To the other, a fragrance from life to life. Who is sufficient for these things? For we are not like so many peddlers of God's Word. But as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God, in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. This is in God's holy word. Let us pray. Our gracious God and Father, we do ask that this morning you would illuminate our hearts to understand what your word says, that we might be faithful to believe what you have spoken and to walk in your ways. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. A number of years ago, I had to catch a connecting flight in uh, Frankfurt, Germany. I don't know if you've ever been to this airport. It's a massive international airport. Uh, And I think it's rather a stroke of marketing genius, the way in which they have the airport set up, because to make it from one connecting flight to another, you have to make it through the massive uh, duty-free shop. Uh, And this isn't just simply like a duty-free shop you might find at the Portland airport or or some other uh, airport here, it feels like you're walking through a giant shopping mall. The very first thing you have to walk through is the, the massive perfume section. Um, it's, it's kind of ghastly, uh, the, the amount of perfume that kind of pervades the air and kind conflicts with one another. I don't understand why uh, anybody would want to spend $300 on a bottle of perfume when a $6 bucket of Old Spice would do uh, the trick. These are, these are smelly chemicals in a, in a fancy bottle. I'm not uh, knocking you if you have a, a fancy bottle of perfume, by the way. I'm just saying Old Spice is much better. But the ancient world made perfumes as well. Of course, they didn't have the luxury of having these these massive chemical laboratories uh, in which to make them. If you wanted to make a a vial of perfume, uh, there was really only one thing you could do. You would take a a, a fragrant flower, and then you would crush it. You would crush it so that the oils would uh, exude from the flower, and you would squeeze its oils and distill it into the little vial, and you think, how many how many flowers have to be crushed just for just a little vial of fragrant perfume? Think of all the the amount of time it takes for that flower to blossom. The beauty that it brings and that its final end, of course, is to be crushed so that the fragrant aroma uh, would be used for yet another purpose. I think there's a certain analogy to be had here, and it's an analogy that Paul himself uses in this passage. Paul likens his ministry to that of a crushed flower, to that of a fragrant aroma that arises from the flowers that have been crushed. It reminds us that suffering is not incidental to the ministry. It's not incidental to Paul's ministry, and it is certainly not incidental to the Christian life. Rather, suffering is central to it as it becomes a a way in which Christ manifests his kingship over Paul's life and over the lives of all believers to a watching world. There's three considerations, I think, will bear this out in this passage. The first we'll see in verses 12 to 14, we can simply call it trouble and triumph. The second consideration we'll have is verses 15 and 16, at least the first half of verse 16, we can call it a double odor. And then finally, in verse 17, we'll consider that of peddlers and preachers. So, trouble and triumph, a double odor, and peddlers and preachers. If you recall our context, again, this is a very occasional letter, one, that requires great attention and care to what is going on in this particular passage, why Paul is writing the way that he does. Paul has been writing to defend his ministry against detractors. As you recall last week, there was a certain church member who had openly defied Paul's authority as the church sat idly by and did nothing. It left Paul with no choice but to have a very painful confrontation in face, person to person with the members that left him walking away with egg on his face. The situation was not resolved. So let led Paul to write a severe letter, that tear-stained letter that he spoke of in last week's passage, a, a letter that is not found in the New Testament, a letter that comes somewhere at some point between 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians. And it was a severe letter calling them to repentance. I mean, to consider how different uh, uh, communication is today from the ancient world. You know, if, if I wanted to, uh, I could hop on a plane and be in Central Africa in less than a day. I could uh, go home this afternoon and Skype with a friend in London and speak almost simultaneously with him as if I were speaking with him face to face. You could send an email across the globe faster than it'd take to make it out the door. First communication in the 21st century is very easy. Paul would not have some of these problems that he's confronting. Waiting to hear back from Corinth, all he'd have to do is send an email. If you don't hear back in enough time, you send a follow-up email. Paul doesn't have that luxury. Paul can't uh telegraph, there can't be any telegrams. He can't send an, you know, an SOS. Uh he can't text, he can't Skype. He can't even have a letter certified with a, a guaranteed 3-day delivery. Rather that severe letter had to be sent in person. And so this the letter was sent off. Paul has no clue how Corinth is going to respond. Think of the mounting anxiety this causes for all. for this church that he loves so dearly. It leaves him with no rest. He, he can't wait to figure out what happens. So we find out here it says that he dispatches Titus to Corinth to get a pulse on the situation. He finally just says, I've had enough. I can't wait any longer. Titus, good old buddy, can you go and figure out what's going on? Give a lay of the land. Am I able to go? If I, if I show up, will I be welcomed with open arms or will there still be hostile reaction. Will I still get the cold shoulder? Well, during this delay, during this wait, there's a golden opportunity, this open door, so to speak, uh, that arises for Paul, a missionary opportunity uh, in the city of Troas. Uh, Troas is a a port city on the the coast of uh, western Turkey, Uh, and and it's it's an opportunity that they had been waiting for. The opportunity finally arises. So, Paul says basically to Titus, I'll go to Troas, you go to Corinth, after a time we will rendezvous. Come back uh, and meet me at Troas and we'll be back uh, on our regular uh, course of business. That's the game plan. Paul to Turkey, Titus to Greece, and then they will rendezvous at a later point. Well, Paul begins to labor uh, in this new area and it's the moment he's been waiting for, yet he's so distressed despite this golden opportunity that stands before him. He's so distressed uh, by the fact that here's a church on the verge of falling apart in Corinth that he is unable to focus. He is not able to give that, that simplicity of focus, that singularity. He's so distracted, he actually ends up leaving this golden opportunity of Troas because the question of Corinth weighs too heavily on him. Now, if you recall, well, Paul in, in the uh, chapters 1 and 2 had talked about what his initial plan was. His initial plan was for him to go uh, eventually uh, to Corinth, then Macedonia. Well, it turns out that the last ship, so to speak, has come into port for the season and Titus is still nowhere to be found. Paul doesn't know how to get a hold of Titus either. He doesn't know what has happened to his co-laborer. And after a period of time waiting for Titus, and now Titus doesn't show. So now there's this, this added burden. He doesn't know how Corinth is going to respond, and now he also does not know where Titus is. So Paul leaves Troas for Macedonia. Again, remember that, 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 that his prior plans is to go to Corinth first, then Macedonia. What does Paul do? He bypasses Corinth altogether because he still doesn't know how he's going to be received. He goes straight to Macedonia to meet with the churches there. You think of Thessalonica, uh, and um, there's another, uh, a Philippi. Is it Philippi? Anyways, there, there's two churches in Macedonia. I think those are it. Double check your geography. Don't have my degree in geography, so um, if I'm wrong, correct me. But Paul's goal is to go to Macedonia, but the suffering will not relent. In chapter 7, he uh, continues to describe this feeling of anxiety, these pressures that mount. He has conflict from without and the fears within. Not only the external pressures of being that man on the run, as there are various groups out to murder him, but he also has the internal agony of a fractured relationship. There's no word regarding Corinth. He has now abandoned a golden opportunity and a missionary outpost, and now one of his fellow co-laborers is now missing in action. By all accounts, this reeks of a failed ministry. I think something that we, we, we often have glossed by us because we think, oh, Paul, the great and mighty Paul. But looking on the ground, if you were to receive this as a missionary report, you would think, what in the world is going on here? You can't find one of your, your fellow employees. You've abandoned, you have abandoned a missionary post. You still haven't word back from a church that, that is on the verge of falling apart. What is going on? How would you respond to a situation like this? Well, we see Paul's response here in verse 14. But thanks be to God, who in Christ leads us in triumphal procession Always and everywhere. I mean, tap the brakes for a moment, Paul. Right? Are we are we looking at the same playbook? Uh, have we just read the same missionary report? On what account could any of this be called a triumph? Praise God, we've got a church uh, falling on the rocks. Golden opportunity left it. Do I know what's going on in Corinth? I sure don't. Uh, where where's one of my coworkers? I have no idea. But praise God who leads us in a triumphal procession. Here, this is Paul's words. There is no rest for my soul. How can Paul call this a triumph? Is he just trying to have kind of some doughy eye, kind of candy cane, unicorn picture, uh, kind of painting a flowery image of what's not really the case? What we see here is Paul calls all of this a victory. All of it. Note the comprehensive scope to which he attributes praise to God. You know, he's not saying, well, praise God that, my, that I'm, I'm still alive. Nobody hasn't killed me yet. Now he says he calls, he calls this a victory. How much of this is a victory? All of it. Verse 14, Christ, who leads us in triumph, how often? Always and where? Everywhere. All times, all places, Paul's ministry exhibits the triumph of Christ. In other words, even Paul's suffering constitutes part of Christ's victory. It's not something that falls uh, outside. It's not a blip on the radar screen. It's not something that's happening in the peripheral vision of Christ, so to speak, as he sits on the throne on high. What Paul is saying is that all of his failures, all of his anxieties, all of his fights, his fears, they are not a blip on the radar screen. This is not an accidental oversight. Rather, these very fears exemplify Christ's own triumph over Paul. In the ancient world, there was something known as a triumphal procession, particularly in the Roman world whenever a Roman general had defeated the enemy. The city where the battle took place or near where the battle took place would host a massive parade. And then the cavalcade that ensued, the general would lead a triumphal procession into the city, leaving in uh, his train, his captives, those whom he had subdued and subjugated in the midst of battle. These prisoners of war, as they are now led to their death and sacrificed, as incense is offered up to the Roman general's deity. In the ancient world, we have over 350 accounts of these triumphal processions recorded in the Roman world. Such imagery would be imprinted on the minds on everybody in the first century to use that language of triumphal procession. Well, that Greek word here, that verb to lead in triumphal possession, uh, procession only occurs two times in the New Testament. First instance we find in Colossians 2.15 where Paul praises Christ for having, and I quote, disarm those demonic rulers and authorities at the cross and has put them on public display by leading them in a triumphal procession. Colossians 2, Christ has subjugated the forces of darkness by leading them in that triumphal procession. They are the captives in his train. The second instance we find is here In 2 Corinthians 2.14, where it is not the demonic rulers who are the objects of Christ's triumph, but rather it is Paul himself. Not just Paul, but all believers. Look at that language. Your thanks be to God who in Christ leads us in triumphal procession. If you look at older translations, there's a, there's a real struggle with how to translate this particular verb. If you look at the King James Version or, or even my, my favorite translation, the New American Standard, if you read uh, Calvin on this matter, they um, will translate it something like this. Thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph. The implication being and the way in which that's interpreted is thanks be to God who, who, who leads us along as co-victors in the party. But There's a problem With that translation and that interpretation, that's not what the word means. Paul is not saying that God has caused Paul to triumph in Christ. Rather, the language is this, that Christ has triumphed over Paul. In other words, Paul is not a co-victor riding alongside in Christ's golden chariot, leading the life of of greatness and power and success. Rather, Paul is a prisoner of war, being led on a death march. That's the imagery that Paul has in place here. It's one that makes much better sense of the passage that we have before us. Paul is in in effect saying, my repeated sufferings, my daily deaths, they are evidence of Christ's mastery over me. Later he will say that it is through our suffering that Christ manifests his resurrection power. We're going to get to that when we get to chapter 4. In other words, that the Christian life is not simply a pattern of suffering unto glory, though that is true, humiliation unto exaltation, but rather for the Christian life, it is simultaneously both death and resurrection at the same time. That for the Christian, his suffering is the way in which the resurrection power of God is manifested in the mode, in the form of suffering and weakness. As Paul began every, nearly every one of his letters, not simply Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, but also Paul, what? A bond servant. Paul, a slave of Christ. Right, we live in a country whose history has been riddled by the evils of the transatlantic slave trade. We live in an era that extols the virtues of independence and autonomy. And so we cringe when we hear that word of slave or bondservant. That's why you'll see a lot of translations uh, 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 just translated servant. It's still a good word, but it's much more, uh, more than, than simply like somebody's butler. It's a much stronger word than that. We forget that we have the repeated phrase given and testimony given throughout the New Testament. You are not your own, for you have been bought with a price. You are now the personal possession of Christ Almighty. What is your only comfort in life and death? The very first question of the Heidelberg Catechism. What is it? That I am not my own. I do not belong to myself. But I belong to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. We are property of another. Jude 4 describes Christ in the same terms, that Christ is our Master and our despot. As we've been made slaves of the kingdom of righteousness and of grace. So Paul's ministry embodies this very message. It is a ministry of suffering and death. Paul does not simply preach the cross while he flies home in a private jet. Rather, Paul bears the cross. The ministry and the man are one and the same. The message and the man are united and bound indissolubly. It is not simply a message of the cross that Paul brings. It is a ministry of the cross as every day of Paul's life is a reflection of suffering in union with his Savior. It is a life of cross-bearing. The very thing our Savior said was requisite and would happen to anyone who seeks to follow him. Paul's suffering is central to his ministry. It lingers like a sacrificial incense that is being burned as the conquering king enters a conquered city in triumphal procession. See, Paul has been taken captive as a prisoner of war. We tend to forget that Paul was the great foe of the ancient church. You read the first opening chapters of Acts. Paul is the one putting Christians to death. Yet now, King Jesus is the one who has subjugated the church's greatest foe and has now made his greatest foe his captive. He has made his greatest foe his chief herald, proclaiming the message of reconciliation. That Christ has come to subdue us to himself, to reconcile us, to himself. This leads to the second consideration that Paul has, this double odor we see here in verses uh, 15 and 16. Uh, When I was in seminary, I lived in the dorms, and it was a really uh, great opportunity uh, uh, for the most part, uh, getting to live with with these international students. I was the RA, so sometimes you'd have to handle, um, um, uh, you have to be the mediator, mediating situations between two grown men that you never thought you'd have to mediate for somebody who is above the age of about 12 years old. Uh, But uh what was great about uh, living in the dorms and seminaries, you get to stay with about 15, 20 other uh, guys and, and, and girls uh, from across the globe. You get to uh, taste different uh, international foods and cuisines. You get to hear about what Christianity and, and the Christian life is, is like in, uh, in, in Nigeria or Kenya or South Korea. Uh, and, and so it goes, or even in London, England. In fact, my roommate was was this posh, posh Anglican uh, doctor, still a very good friend of mine. And I remember uh, one particular Thanksgiving, we were all sitting around the table and somebody asked, uh, Uh, A question. They said, you know, what do you think uh, the the marriage supper of the lamb uh, is going to consist in in terms of food? I thought it was kind of a a silly question, but I think the answers were really interesting because the answers that everybody gave were were particular meals that had aromas that reminded them of home. So inevitably for some, it might be barbecue, it might be turkey, um, it might be any number of things. But I remember my, my posh Anglican roommate uh, saying, uh, in the midst of all these international students, in this kind of posh English accent, which I, I'm not going to try to impersonate, but he says, I can tell you one thing it's not going to smell like. It's not going to smell like kimchi, um, which offended pretty much everybody at the table uh, because uh, uh, most everybody was was either uh, from, from uh, South Korea or China, uh, and so um, it was a very awkward moment. But what we see here and it, but what's interesting, right, is that for somebody the smell of let's say turkey or kimchi, you think it's oh, this reminds me of home. This smells so great. But for that same thing to somebody else, it smells like death. What Paul is saying is that that Paul is Christ's kimchi. That's essentially what's going on here. Paul exudes a certain aroma, and to some people it smells great. To see Paul's suffering, to see Paul's life in ministry, it smells like heaven. But to other people, they see the exact same thing and it reeks of death. It becomes a litmus test for determining where one's citizenship lies. Objectively speaking, Paul's ministry is the aroma of Christ's victory. That's what he's talked about in 12, uh, verses 12 and 13. It demonstrates that Christ has triumphed over Paul. But subjectively, that triumph, the way in which it's manifested itself, it's, people have different reactions to that. To those being saved, Paul says, it's the ministry of a fragrant life. It's the fragrance of life. right? Why, why is it that Christians uh, enjoy reading Fox's Book of Martyrs? Or through Gates' of splendor, the story of Jim Elliot? Why why would anybody want to enjoy reading Jim Elliott's story, a a missionary who's who's martyred in the 1950s, before any uh, of of that uh, Ecuadorian tribe has has even heard the gospel? You think, how is that a triumph? But for those who know the rest of the story, you see how it leads to a triumph. It's, It's the logic of the cross. It doesn't make sense. This is not how things work according to how we would expect them to play it out, but such is the logic of the cross. To those being saved, the ministry of suffering and death is a fragrant aroma, but to those being destroyed, it is the stench of death. Paul's ministry serves as a litmus test where one stands in relationship to the cross. Do you find the message of the cross sweet, or is it offensive? Is it odious? Is it the power of God unto salvation, or is it foolishness? Right, which do you think it is? Is it foul or is it fair? There is no third option. Paul has already said this much in Corinth, 1 Corinthians 1, but the message of the cross is what? It is foolishness to those who are perishing. For those of us who are being saved, it is the power of God. It is the wisdom of God. Now here lies the logic of the cross. If Christ has made you his, your life may look like death but it will smell like heaven. This runs absolutely contrary to everything you hear from the health and wealth prosperity gospel preachers. That the glory is to be found in this life, that the victory is to be found in this life, that the triumph is to be found in this life. What Paul is saying is the exact opposite. Paul says, among the hosts of the earth, we are scum of the earth. We're among all men most miserable just as a flower is crushed to make perfume. So the crushing and suffering of the Lord's saints arises as a sweet aroma to him. What does Isaiah 53 say concerning the suffering servant? It pleased the Lord to crush him. What does the psalmist say in Psalm 116? Blessed in the sight of the Lord, or precious in the sight of the Lord, is the death of his saints. How can we say that in any other context? It's through the logic of the cross only that we can understand these sayings. For those who are perishing, the message of the cross, a life lived under the cross, that life of self-denial and and, um, obedience, is a message that reeks afoul. Nobody wants to hear that. But for those of us who belong to Christ, the message of the cross, the message of self-denial, never smelled sweeter. Go then, earthly fame and treasure, come disaster, scorn and pain. In thy service, pain is pleasure, and with thy favor, loss is gain. It's one of my favorite hymns. When we consider the weightiness of such a ministry, that when you sign up for the Christian life and, and count the cost, those who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution, Paul writes. They'll suffer suffer tribulation. Paul writes, in light of this ministry that we have, who is sufficient for this? Who would ever sign up for such a ministry? Who is competent to live such a ministry out? Who can bear under such a ministry? It's not a rhetorical question that Paul is asking. He actually answers this question in chapter 3, verse 5. Who is sufficient? Paul says, I am. But not because I am self sufficient but because God has made me sufficient. What Paul is beginning to target here is yet another problem facing the Corinthian church. It's not just this disaster that's arisen from from the botched church discipline case. It's not just the constant infighting uh, and and the boasting uh, and and the various forms of immorality with which uh, the Corinthian church is struggling against. There is now also the added problem that the church has begun to be seduced by celebrity preachers. Paul's going to target them more clearly in chapters 10-13 to when he mocks them and calls them super apostles. These celebrity preachers who have come in preaching a message of health and wealth, of strength and self-sufficiency, Paul says, We are not like those men, peddlers of God's word. In other words, here, as Paul begins to contrast his ministry with this other ministry, now he's given a litmus test for what the proper ministry looks like, a ministry of life under the cross. He says, Let's compare my ministry with these celebrity super apostles that you have begun to lend your ear towards. Let's contrast the two. Here's my ministry on the one hand, one that is marked by suffering, by devastation, and by loss. And on the other hand, there are these super apostles, these peddlers, these hucksters, these snake oil salesmen. One commentator says you could translate it these retailers. Men who are preaching God's word for a buck, men who are showing up preaching and then demanding a paycheck, wanting compensation siphoning off the lives of the church for their own pursuit of pleasure. These flashy preachers who measure their ministry by strength and success, rather than measuring the effectiveness or efficiency of their ministry by the logic of the cross. So Paul says, which one is Uh, uh, the most legitimate. Which ministry serves that proper criterion? Whose ministry will stand under the floodlight of the coming judgment? Is it the one who has been captured by Christ, whose entire life reeks of the cross? Or is it those who do nothing but want their own prestige and power and pleasure in this life and want it now? And so here in verse 17, in four short phrases, Paul gives four marks of a faithful ministry. And notice that fortune and glory characterize none of it. First, he says it is a ministry marked by simplicity, not duplicity. We return to that word again. That word that Paul has already used once just a few weeks ago just in the previous chapter. Men of simplicity, or I'm sorry, sincerity. I'm not here. Saying, preaching one thing out one side of the mouth and hoping for something out the other side. Also he says, "We are men commissioned by God, in other words, we are authorized heralds. This is the real McCoy. this is not a cheap imitation. This is not a counterfeit. He says also thirdly, that we preach before God. In other words, every time he preaches, he knows he is preaching in front of a much more important audience than simply the audience of Corinth. he's preaching before God himself, knowing that his entire ministry is going to stand under the weight of the coming judgment. First Corinthians chapter three, when the purge and the great fire comes, those things that will there are things in one 's ministry that will be purged, the dross will be purged, and we'll see what's left standing on the other side. And so Paul says, I've come to preach nothing but Christ. Something that only, uh, that, 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 uh, a message that will survive the great judgment. And finally, he says we preach in Christ. Meaning this, that he preaches concerning Christ in His glory. He's not preaching to line his own co- uh, pockets. He's not trying to give a fancy rhetorical oration so he could go, bravo, Do it again here. Take my money. Brother Paul is actually having to preach a message that makes people very angry with him because the goal is holiness. Well, what could be said about Paul's ministry? His apostolic ministry is true also of the pastoral ministry and is also true of the Christian life. There are three significant features that we find as as we consider this passage such an important passage. First thing to consider is this, that suffering happens to the believer in part to remind us of this, that Christ is king. And Christ is not an elected official. but Rather, he is God's beloved son, gifted with an everlasting throne. And though it is true, and, it, it's, and I, I don't want to deny this or think uh, I want you to think that I'm trying to underplay this. It is true. Paul says elsewhere, we are co-heirs with Christ. That everything that Christ has received by his resurrection from the dead is now ours by faith, be it justification, be it adoption, be it sanctification, or all those other benefits that flow from or attend our union with Christ. It is true we are co-heirs with Christ. But what is also equally true, and we find the emphasis here, is that we are slaves of Christ as well. And the suffering in this life is given, even as it crushes us, to exhibit the cross, to pour out a, a, a sweet aroma to our great God on high. Second thing to consider is that Christ's victory is not contingent upon the successfulness of our own ministry. We often act as God as if we think God needs us. And so we grow discouraged when we do not become effective or as popular as we dreamed of becoming. But here we find that Christ's victory is not contingent upon our, the successfulness of our ministry. Is quite the opposite. So our ministry, no matter how big or small, evidences the reality that Christ has already triumphed. What is it that Paul says in the midst of uh, of the massive uh, failures that we see here uh, in verse 14? But thanks be to God, who always and and everywhere leads us in a triumphal procession. Even when it looks like your ministry is falling apart before your very eyes, even in those times it manifests Christ's triumph over us, as he has subdued us to himself. And so we find a success is not the litmus test that marks an effective ministry; rather, it's faithfulness. And finally, this passage reminds us that for those being saved, our suffering testifies to the watching world of Christ's claim on our lives—that it is, in fact, an imprint that Christ has conquered us; that we who were once enemies have now been purchased by Him. And yet, for those who are perishing, it makes no sense. Right? Christ's message. Uh, Sounds like foolishness. Christ's life smells like death. And yet God uses suffering to make himself known. It's a picture of the cross in smaller form. The very thing we proclaim that Christ himself suffered the death, the agonizing death on the cross, so that all who might trust in him would live. Let us pray. Our gracious God and Father, we do thank you for uh, your word. We ask that you would use this word. Um, to lift up our hearts so we might give you thanks in all things, being reminded that you have subdued us to yourself and reconciled us. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.